we would like to begin by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which we record today, and pay our respects to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders, past, present and emerging. Welcome to Rule Breaker Style Maker, a podcast breaking down the so-called fashion rules that we hold and that hold us back in our life and our style. Through conversations with industry guests and the Australian Style Institute team, we explore how breaking a rule can change your life. I'm your host, Lauren D. Bartolo. Let's get into today's episode. In today's episode, I chat with Sai Waifu, a fashion designer and artist who has shown in galleries, worked across the Australian fashion industry, and is dedicated to the inclusion of representation in our industry. Sai Wai appeared in TV season one of Making It Australia and is the program coordinator for Melbourne Fashion Festival. In this episode, we talk taking chances and how getting older is a privilege. This episode was brought to you by Australian Style Institute. Study to pursue your dream career in styling and gain the skills to change your life. I've been really looking forward to this conversation because we crossed paths some time in the past 12 months Mm -hmm. and we crossed paths because of Melbourne Fashion Festival, which you are the program coordinator of, Yes, but you are so many other things. I want to go back to you started in fashion design. Yep. And a long uh, time ago, um, a long time ago, <laughs> and yet it's become it's really been the foundation for a lot of the work that you've then gone on to do as yeah. an artist yeah, and definitely. in other disciplines. We were chatting a little bit before about the paths that we go down, and not always the most um, encouraged, welcomed, <laughs> or traditional within our family constructs. Yeah, how did you end up in fashion and? What was that process like or journey like for you? Um, so I, I mean, my background is Chinese. So I'm a, um, a family from Malaysia. So we're um, third generation Chinese Malaysia, um, born in Malaysia. And then we came to Australia in 1980. So I've mm-hmm. been, been around here for a while. I think for me, there was always a very strong sense of who I was and my cultural background and and things like that. And also um, that real focus on education and making sure, like, and I think it's a lot of the migrant experience as well where you have to do better than your parents and you, you know, they've made sacrifices for you to come to this country and there's an expectation that you you do very well. So also I was you know, seen as the very bright one in the family and... So, so no pressure no or pressure, anything. No pressure, no. <laughs> no pressure. So, you know, it was I was going to go to good school and I was going to, you know, be a doctor or a lawyer because mm-hmm. um, they were the two two options. And, yeah, it just kind of didn't pan out that way. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I did very, very well at school and the path was that I was going to go either to medicine or law but I'd always had a very strong desire to do something creative. I've always drawn, um, I've always made, I've always done 
done things, largely because I like to pull things apart and see how they work and then I have to work out how to put them back together again. I think that's something we don't talk about that often, but as creators <laughs> we look at maybe car parts, you know, we pull, a, we pull apart engines, but it can be the same even in how garment is constructed. I'm just oh, as just curious to know. Anything, yeah. Just anything. Yeah. You just want to know how it works. Yeah. Um, much to, I think, my parents' horror of how I used to pull things apart. But anyway, that's a whole that's a whole other thing. So in terms of, you know, path, it was, you know, it was supposed to be very linear. But then I sort of, I had always done art. I'd always um, done very well at doing art at school mm-hmm. and really wanted to go down that path. But it didn't seem like an option that was going to be there. Whereas fashion was an industry and there was a job at the end of it. So it was part of this negotiation process of mine, (laughs) in particular with my father. My mother had always encouraged my creative side, but it was always, I suppose, presented in a way of, oh, but you always need something to fall back on. You always need... That safety net. Safety net. Yeah. So I thought, oh, well, you know, I can... Fashion's kind of creative or... I thought it was much more creative than it was or is um, initially when I got into the industry. But that's, that's an interesting... Other, that's yeah. a whole... That's a whole What, what do you think is the biggest misconception around that creativity? I think that you're going to be in a studio designing and draping and, you know... And, yeah, if you end up down that path, you can, but... I, after leaving university, ended up in more commercial commercial places because that's where the jobs were and it suited me at the time um, to do that sort of work and I learned a lot from it because you learn about the ins and outs of, of that industry. Mm-hmm. You learn about how it's run as a business and that was fascinating to me as well. And learning, you know... Insights into how a business is run can hold you in really good stead for wherever you end up. And I'm always glad I studied fashion because I've got I've had a ton of um, real a amazing opportunities, but b transferable skills out of it throughout my life and throughout my career, and the connections I've been able to make, and I suppose in a way leverage off and keep moving through the industry in different ways or outside the industry in different ways as well has been great. I think that is so interesting, moving within and outside Mm. of. There aren't, well, I'm trying to think of other careers that allow you to do that in the way that fashion and the creative world allows. Some skills are very fixed. Mm. Um, It's, yeah, I think that's just one of the real, something that sets, I think, fashion and different creative pursuits, fashion in particular because it meets the world of creativity and commercialism Mm. in such interesting and so many ways. So many ways. On top of that, there's that, yeah, there's that real commercial side of fashion as well. There's that creative side, but learning how to balance it as well is just really important. How do you do that? I suppose that's with anything. You can't do anything in a bubble as well. Like you have to be, like fashion is one of those industries where you have to be aware of what's happening in terms of for want of a better word the zeitgeist so what's happening in the rest of the world you need to be aware it to run any sort of to run any sort of business successfully or to run any sort of practice successfully is you need to know what's happening in terms of the economy you need to be knowing what's happening in terms of what's happening socially people's thoughts people's you know ethics or values at a particular time 
businesses that do really well are the ones that take into account all those other factors of what's happening and fashion really taps into that. You look at any fashion movement um, from a historical sense or from the sense of, I suppose, sociology study, it's a reflection of what's happening at the time. You may not see it when you're really on top of it, but once you start looking... Or when, when you look at it with the benefit of hindsight, it's much clearer. People who are really good at it, people who do things like forecasting, yeah. they're the ones that, you know, they, they seem to have a crystal ball. Um, so somebody like Lee Edelcourt who um, is, you know, this kind of guru fashion forecaster, you, you know, this sort of a... I mean, she still does what she does, but back in the day when... It was pre-digi, pre-internet, mm-hmm. you know. You, you get these, there were this like tome or this thing that would just kind of arrive and you, you get like the oracle. Thought, the, it was literally like an oracle, <laughs> just these words that you put Majestic down a paper. And you'd go, interpretations oh, and you just, <laughs> like in my brain, I'd be like, how does she do that? But <laughs> um, yeah, you know, with the benefit of age and time, you kind of go, oh, okay, actually that's really clever. Yeah. It's really smart, like. Yes. Yeah. And that was at a time when fashion was dictating more to the consumer about what was to come out. Mm. We've seen a real shift that way Mm. now where consumers are leading and therefore the brands you mentioned uh, values before, Mm. brands are really having to reassess what values they're leaning into and whether they possess them at all if they want to continue to tap into the markets that they want to. Uh, That's something that you – and I don't want to skim over your incredible career history (laughs) – That if I look to what is something that you're really recognised for now, aside from the creativity, that is to spotlight representation. So I know that you're not a fashion brand, but you certainly are a brand and a voice as a creative. What do you think are the messages that are coming through really strongly now that you're observing that it's absolutely time for them to to have a place in our industry? I I think that any sort of representation um, coming from a migrant, you know, Asian migrant background, you're more aware of when a brand gets it right or a business gets it right and when they don't. Like tokenism, there's no time for tokenism. It's don't box tick, don't... It has to be done from a meaningful place. Um, I think that with a lot of brands, yeah, there is box ticking or it's at face value, you know, it's like oh, it's on our Instagram square, it's on, you know, our TikTok or whatever. Oh, yeah, we're representing. I'm like, but have you actually looked at the core of your business? Mm. Have you looked at who's working within your business? Have you seen, is there colour in that room? Is there diversity in that room? Is there a mix in that room? Um, And when you get people to really look at themselves and look at their businesses and take an assessment of, why aren't there people of colour making decisions within that business? Why does it even need to be a question within your business? That's that's a problem there already. So, you know, I think I think that's a really important step is that there are people of colour, there are people with disabilities, there are people with, you know, different needs and different backgrounds. We all have a voice. Are there any brands that you think are doing that really well or really poorly at the moment? Because representation isn't just about seeing more of what we want to see. We've noticed a shift and I notice our stylist community have seen this with their clients as well. It's the emphasis and the weight on the values of how a piece or a product arrives to Mm. us. 
I, I know I say that a bit facetiously that there's brands that aren't getting it right mm. and aren't getting it wrong. I think we're seeing a lot of improvement that's happening. But I think it's consideration at every point of the business at this stage. It's not just about what we're seeing. It's about what we're physically putting on our bodies more so than ever. I know we've been speaking about it for years now about, you know, we want to fashion revolution week, for example, only exists because we care about where our clothes are being made. I think brands definitely can't go backwards. There's just some that aren't keeping up quick enough. Yeah. I mean, there's some brands that genuinely it's not within their business model to care it just exactly it's about essentially churning and burning and there will always be businesses like that so you make a choice as a consumer not to consume not to consume not to buy into that not to give that the space but to champion or look at other brands and even if you can't afford a certain brand or you don't buy it, but you really like the ethics or like that, you know, just yeah. it's a share or it's a, you know, that's what I'd aspire to. Not everyone's got the luxury of being able to buy, yeah. you know, bespoke, beautifully made. Of course. Um, will last you forever pieces, but it's those conscious little choices yeah. to do that. I mean, I tried this year with um, – we know I like dressing up. I love dressing up. <laughs> so for festival this mm-hmm. year, I made a conscious decision that I would try not to buy anything new. Uh-huh. Um, and I sh- essentially shopped my wardrobe or I bought um, or I've focused on secondhand. So all my fits were pretty much that. There's some stuff in my wardrobe I love and any chance to wear it, wear it again, I yeah. will like. And I love trying to find new ways of wearing it. Of wearing it, it as well. well. That's, that's a stylist in you. It's fun. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, and it's that another, is the art another of dressing. Yeah, it's another way of dressing up. Yeah. Um, you know, the most stylish people aren't the ones that can afford every single designer brand on the planet. Like, um, you know, start, you know, money doesn't buy taste, as they, they say. And that's so true. You know, you, you just have to look at, look at you know, that celebrity mix or whatever. Like, they have to have a stylist. It's like I'd love to actually see what they, what a celebrity's authentic style is, like what that would look like. Yes. Um, it would actually be really interesting. Yeah. Like, I would actually would love to know how people would dress if they were left to their own devices. <laughs> um, I think yeah, that's I think an interesting be, I, oh, it'd point. Be fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I think they have an idea of what they want. They don't know how to execute and other times they've got no idea at all. I remember sitting in a really great session with a stylist in London, Carl Willett, who styles or at least was at the time Paloma Faith. Mm. And when they started working together, he described her style as very Paloma but very theatrical. She'd actually go to um, dress-up shops to, to buy what she was you know, wearing at the time as this music career of hers was emerging And he said it wasn't about changing her. His job as a stylist was just bringing it into the spaces that she wanted to be seen more in so that if she was on the red carpet, it was still that style but generally executed by a fashion house of today's time, which is the commercial part, Mm. yes. But what started to happen was that she would emerge wearing the clothes rather than the clothes wearing her and that was the biggest distinction. But finding that sweet spot of maintaining her Paloma-ness <laughs> without stripping it back so much that she looked like anybody else. Yeah, and that's the thing. That's with a, a good stylist or anyone with a sense of personal style for themselves is they always look like themselves. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, I think that there's a lot to be said for people who want to be a stylist or, or think that they 
or think they can style as like, are you just churning out other versions of yourself? Because you know there's that thing where certain stylists, they really push their own style onto other people. Yeah, I mean we saw the Rachel Zoe era oh. where everyone looked like her, which, yeah, was a, a pretty scary thing. But I've noticed through the evolution of styling, so something that we talk about quite a bit in the podcast is reticular activating system, the part of the brain that has us looking for more of what's familiar. And I think that's one of the biggest traps that stylists and designers alike can fall into is where they execute their vision on other people when that's the beauty of other people is that it's it has to be through a different lens or interpretation to look like them. Otherwise, yeah, back to the clothes wearer rather than us wearing the clothes. That's anyone who works with a person on their look per se. Like yeah. incredible makeup artists aren't the ones, especially the ones that are teaching people how to do their makeup, aren't the ones that are going to teach people how to do a cookie cutter or yeah. to do an uncomfortable version of themselves. You should feel the be the best possible version of yourself if you feel really good. Do you think that it gets easier with age? Oh, hell yeah. I'm really, I'm leaning into getting older. I'm not dyeing my hair. I'm embracing the grey. And I think as you get older, you do get braver, especially women past in their 40s yeah, and, tell me and going forward that. They just they're terrifying because they just do not give a shit anymore. Like they don't care what people think anymore. They have nothing to lose and that's why they're so terrifying and I love that and I embrace that fierceness and I just go, yeah, let's go do it. Um, And, yeah, it is a real privilege getting older and 40 isn't what it used to be, 50 isn't what it used to be. We're living longer, we've got a different attitude to life in general we have a better quality of life what do you think the first step is to to start to embrace more of your authentic style and care less about other external opinions I think it's to do with your sense of self-worth and who you are Mm. as well and seeing the value in yourself your value is not predated by what you do or how much money in the bank or who you are it's probably more to do with your outlook on things and your kindness at the end of the day. Um, Kind people are beautiful. Um, They always look beautiful. And it's not a conventional sense of beauty either. It's that that inner light that you see from people. I think what you've just tapped into that is something that we see when women and men and they, everybody, but when we find as humans that where our confidence isn't, isn't at the forefront, maybe anxiety or fear Mm. or anything around our self-perception has crept in. It's usually because the weight that we're putting on uh, our external factors have started to become more important than the weight that we're putting on the ones that we hold internally. Absolutely. And it's your, the way you react to things as well. Tell me what you mean. In the sense that you, you can choose to just react to things, um, in a negative sense, you can choose to react to things and to see the negative light in things, or you can just choose to try to see the good in it as well. Or, and that's the same with people as well. Is like you, a, is that whole line of you don't know what people are going through. You really don't. And we're all carrying so much weight at the moment, mentally, physically, whatever. Post, you know, this pandemic. Like I didn't, I didn't realize how burnt out I was until, like. I think this year, (laughs) when I just went, oh my God, I'm actually really, really burnt out. 
you know, it's that stopping to sort of take time to really assess things and to have a, like, learning how to have a break. What's interesting is because I've had to move my house, I had to look at my wardrobe and realise how much stuff I have and how much clothing I have and that's kind of terrifying but also I'm rediscovering things as well which is kind of exciting. So do you throw things away? Do you – what's your rule for (laughs) – if you have any for – because I I ask this question because (laughs) I know that you're a self-confessed hoarder in some cases which is also what fuels your creativity and gives – Actually, it sounds like your art gives you the space or permission to be able to hoard because yeah, you does. repurpose so it well. Does. It How does. does that manifest in the wardrobe? Um, in the wardrobe, I'm either – I the quality stuff I really don't throw out. Mm-hmm. Um, I do um, sell some stuff occasionally and then there's – yeah, there's just some really precious pieces that I'll never kind of get rid of. But I think if you buy – you know, it's a sale adage if you buy well, you can keep wearing it. Yeah. Um, and there's some stuff I've bought over the years that I still wear and I still get a great deal of joy in wearing as well. Given that you're so tactile by nature, mm. I know one of the mediums that you use a lot is paper, which I'd mm. love to explore. But what what are you looking for when you're shopping or purchasing for yourself? How how much does the textile itself play a part if if at all oh yeah definitely um I avoid acrylic like the plague I okay. just <laughs> acrylic knits freak me out sure. it's like a real text a real tactile thing like there's certain textiles I just can't stand the touch of sure I avoid viscose as yeah. well because I just find it blows apart yeah. I don't find I get any long-term wear out of it like you wash it once and it just mm. disintegrates I try as much as possible by natural fibres. Um, I do, having said that, you know, there's certain types of polys that I will buy um, because they're very hard wearing and they will last a long time and they'll hold up really, really well. Um, I'm also an obsessive ironer and presser. Like, I really? love it. Like, it's just the what sense does it of, give you? There's a sense of peace in okay. that beautiful steam and the ironing. Um, and doing a finishing press on something. A lot of the reason why stuff that you buy online looks really crap is because it hasn't had a good press. And if you actually know how to press things, you can make most things look a million bucks or close to. Yeah. Yeah. I think a good press will make the world a difference. And that's the same if you mend or if you um, tailor anything for yourself is giving it that really good press, making sure the threads are clipped, it just elevates that thing. So having a really critical eye on everything makes a huge difference as well. Like those little those little clippers, they're fantastic. Mm. Yeah. What you've just said is such a good point. I think it's also so overlooked. If there's anyone that's that doesn't have the fashion, the fashion mm. background that you do, they're things that we take for granted. I know that brands, some, are starting to include Mend Me kits in mm. them. What's your take on on this whole thing? In fact, it's a TikTok trend at the moment where people are learning how to do basic sewing skills for themselves. I think it's fantastic. I mean, mm. I've always had the ability to be able to do that. Yeah, I've got this pair of favourite jeans which I have been mending for about 10 years 
that are more patched than they are jean now. Um, <laughs> and they are my favourite, favourite, favourite jeans. I think it's just like a really crap Zara pair that uh-huh. I bought on a trip overseas when you couldn't get Zara in this country. Yeah. And they are just a really strange kind of almost jodhpur cut and they are so comfortable. And I remember the first time I tore them, I was devastated and I was like, no, I'm going to fix them. Mm-hmm. And then from there, this whole kind of, uh, it's a Japanese mini um, technique called boro stitching, which is you just mm-hmm. stitch on stitch on stitch. Mm-hmm. And it's a way of repairing denim. And this pair of jeans have just become way more stitch than anything else. And when I wear them, people go, oh, where did you get them? Or, oh, you know, thinking Which is amazing because no one else has that pair now. No. Because of how they've evolved. Yeah. And that's where I think, um, you know, we talk about high street fashion and maybe what has been considered disposable fashion, but it's only that if we're allowing the piece to become that. Yeah. I know sometimes the fabric just won't hold, but giving, like denim, giving it new life is one of the most precious things I think we can do. Oh, denim, the amount that it can hold up to abuse basically <laughs> is amazing. But, yeah, there's there's lots of ways to sort of repair or, or customise your clothing as well because sometimes it's about trying stuff on, especially if you're buying vintage or secondhand, there's stuff that for that particular time that's the cut or that's, that's the look of it but it's just a simple repair or a simple take-in or letting out something or taking up a sleeve here or whatever that you can do quite easily. And it's a good way to revamp things in your own wardrobe as well because sometimes it is a really good piece and it's about not getting, not just throwing out that piece. It's about finding that new life in it. Uh, I know that you said paper is one of your mediums that you lean upon a lot. I think it is one of the most incredible things to be able to manipulate given that there are so many restrictions that exist within paper, or at least it looks like it. You seem to defy <laughs> the laws of, of, of paper. What can you, can you explore that with me and tell me what first had you moved toward it as one of the, one of the tools that you use or mediums and where do you think it's going to end up or take you? Um, Paper thing actually happened kind of... Uh, it actually stems a lot from the fashion background as well because at the end of the day when you're learning conventional pattern making, you're taking something that's a 2D into 3D anyway. So working with paper in a sculptural form is just like working on the body. You learn to look at it from different angles. You say that as someone so skilled. You're so casual <laughs> in how you say that. It has so many limitations, but this is part yeah. of your skill. And papers, people forget paper's incredibly strong and it's incredibly robust as mm. well. Um, and I ended up getting into that whole paper thing because I went and the, there was this whole frustration with the fashion industry. Um, and this is that conversation that I started with saying, I thought the fashion industry was going to be a little bit more creative than it was, but I turned out that I was a very good administrator and I ended up administrating and just, you know, chasing, um, you know, spec sheets and and things like that the whole way through. So um, I didn't get to have a creative outlet anymore in a creative industry. So I thought I really need to go and do something um, with that. So I ended up doing a, I think it was like a diploma course at RMIT Mm -hmm. that was the visual arts course. I started 
playing with printmaking and then started manipulating paper from there. So if you actually look back at my work from that period, that's where I started sort of doing this folding and pleating paper thing. But that had really stemmed from my fashion background, looking at designers like um, Fortuny and um, Isimiyaki and, you know, people who manipulated paper and also pattern making and, and mm-hmm. things like that. And you get used to looking at things in the round when you come from a fashion background. So it, naturally it lent more into sculpture as well. So it kind of, it got there eventually. It just takes a little while. And I don't think I've ever taken a traditional path. So everything sort of winds around in very odd ways for me. And it sort of ends up, at, I end up at the right spot at sometimes the right time. Yeah, it sounds like you always end up exactly <laughs> where you need to be and with the people that you need to be with. Yeah, but it's also being open to opportunities as well. Yeah, it's always so how, been, how do we do so, that more? Um, I think it's just about asking questions, being curious, being open to things, being open to that possibility of going, oh, that looks interesting. I, I might be able to do that or I want to learn how to do that. Mm-hmm. I want to, you know... If there's somebody who has some knowledge, they may be... I found a lot of people very generous with their knowledge, especially if you show an interest or there's a spark. Um, Because people naturally do love sharing that interest or that knowledge. That's usually where you get a connection with somebody is you have a mutual interest or a, a mutual like of something and you start talking about it and it grows from there. And yet fear can hold a lot of us back yeah. or the fear of rejection. Yeah, or... and rejection's a big part of it. But the thing is, at the end of the day, this is something that I've really had to teach myself is that the worst anyone can ever say to you is no. Um, you can always ask, like, you know, working collaboratively with people or getting an opportunity somewhere is just asking, just go, hey, I'd love to work with you or I'd you know, I'd love to explore something in the future or I love what you do, um, how can we do a project together? Yeah, they may not like your work or they may not like what you do but um, not everyone has to. I thought that's such a that's such a good point. Not everyone has to. I mean, no. that's a point of creativity and, and just, yeah. just being human. Yeah. <laughs> you were key in bringing together the cultural program. Yeah. Um, of the festival last year or this year and within that was different workshops, seminars, opportunities for people to come and connect with creators or to learn something. Yeah. What are we going to see more of next year? Um, I think there's going to be more of the stuff that went really well were things like workshops where people wanted to learn those older style skills. It was really fun working with like the team at the Embroiderers Guild. Um, they're an amazing bunch there. There's the skill set there. It's amazing. And then interesting things like the, the within RMIT, there's that um, repair cafe as well that you, you learn how to repair things yourself because people aren't learning it f- as part of their life skills throughout now. It's something that you have to sort of learn now and people are seeing the value in it, especially when people are consciously looking at their wardrobes going, I want to repair this, I want to wear it longer, I want to do things um so I'm I'm looking at that I'm also looking at doing things with more diverse groups more marginalized communities as well um and for me doing that in a really genuine way is so important so really getting the community involved really getting them that particular group to drive 
drive that I think is really important. I think the program will be bigger this year. So I think it was about, I think, 90 to 100 events this year. Hopefully I'm feeling like there's going to be more space for it um, that's coming up, which is going to be really good. So it's going to have its own breathing room. would love to do more stuff with fashion photography and more things within that secondhand and secondhand economy in that space as well. Um, yeah, kind of lean into what was successful on this year, this year as well and growing those programs. So, yeah, there's lots of, lots of ideas. From being an artist and working in so many different aspects of the fashion industry to coordinating the program at fashion festivals you're currently doing. I mean, your career is so varied and I know you said you kind of almost end up at the right place at the right time with the right people, but there has, there's very much a progression and a layering of skills, contacts, stages. And we're in a time at the moment when not everyone will give themselves that opportunity. It's but I need to look like I'm established right now. I need to have all my shit together. I need to, I need to be there already. Yeah. How can people navigate this needing to have it all when they can't in the beginning? You, you can't. I don't think you can at any time. Um, and I think it's about okay with being vulnerable as well and okay with where you are at that particular time. For one, you only ever show, and I think this is, there's a lot I love about social media. There's also a lot I don't like about it. And with social media, it's that whole thing of comparing yourself with everyone else and what they're doing and what looks like their very, very shiny life. You're not going to show the worst possible side of yourself. Like that's your that's the face that you, you choose to show to the world. So I think the more people that you have connections with and you speak to on a real basis, you realise that no one actually has any idea what they're doing. And we're all just fumbling our way through. Adults, like when you're young, adults seem to know what's going on and they seem to have an idea of what's going on. Okay. I'm an adult now and I need, I really need a sensible adult in my life because I ain't it. Um, Do you think that's what makes your creativity and playfulness what it is? Um, maybe. I don't think I'll ever grow up. Um, you know, I... That's so cool to hear. I just, I don't see the point of it. Like I, yeah, you know, you have, again, life admin and you need some adulting that does need to be done. But at the end of the day, like you've got one life, like you've got to have fun. Like laugh, I think the the biggest thing about pe- people who age well are the ones that laugh. Like they really do. They have a sense of humour. They're the ones that find that joy in in whatever they do like you know you see people who are like miserable they they don't age well Mm. so you may as well keep laughing and having fun I did this my solo exhibition at Australian Galleries was called Late Bloom and I've started my art practice quite late I started my art career quite late and it's about there's this I can't remember the word for it now but it's a Japanese phrase which basically Everything has a season for when it's ready, when it when it's ready to bloom. So not all the flowers come out at the same time. They all come out at different times. So it's about finding that joy in when is your right time or when is that time that you want to start doing things. And I find a lot of women in particular um, have a tendency to put their lives on hold because they're having families or careers or, or whatever. And then it's 
post that time after the, their kids are at a certain age or where they don't, quote, unquote, need them as much and they have a little bit more time to do that and that's when they usually do have a creative practice or, you know, it's this weird thing where people go, oh, yeah, I'm going to have an art, I'm going to have an art practice, I'm going to paint when I'm retired. And I'm like, why wait till you retire? If you really love it, why don't you just start now? It doesn't have to be big. It can be like watercolour and a notepad. Yeah. Yeah. Like, just do it. They're such wise words. And I think as women, sometimes we need permission. So I think in what you've just shared, I'm hoping that someone gives themselves the permission that they think that they need to be able to just get started in doing that thing that gives back to them that creative practice. Yeah, you don't have to do it for anyone else but yourself. Yep. That's how I started my art practice. I didn't do it for anyone else but myself. I just, I really had, I really started doing it because I didn't have a creative outlet. I hadn't drawn in a really long time. I hadn't made anything in a really long time. And I just needed to, I suppose, relearn how to do that. And I needed, for myself, I needed the structure of a class or a learning environment to force myself into doing it. I work really well on a deadline, so that's why I needed it. I know the way my weird little mind works. That's what worked for me. But not everyone needs that. But workshops are great. Like, they're, they're a good taster to do that. That's why I'm always keen to put workshops into any sort of program I'm working on as well because it just gives people that touch point of the materials are there, everything's there. You can just go dip in and see if that sparks something for you. And it doesn't have to. You might not find the thing that you like, but you'll still learn something for it. You'll still get something out of it. So true. I'm so excited for next year's program based on what you've said. I think that this year was incredible (laughs) and big congratulations to you and the team for that because yeah, it was, it was, um, so varied and it was, it really spoke to where we're at, not only in fashion, but in Australian fashion and the landscape right now. So I cannot wait for next year and I want to thank you so much for your time. Oh, pleasure. Thank you. And your insights and yeah, just for being you, you you really are one of a kind. So <laughs> there better not be anyone who... I will take them out. So if I end up in jail, it's for getting rid of somebody with the same name as me. So other Siwis out there, watch out. Thank you, Siwi. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Rule Breaker, Style Maker. If you'd like to keep up to date with new episodes, podcast news and what we do at ASI, be sure to follow our Instagram at Australian Style Institute. And if you're wanting to follow my own personal style journey and all things human behaviour of style, then you can follow my personal account at Lauren D. Bartolo. And I'll see you in the next episode.